talking and it don't make sense Tell me what it's all about The truth is stranger the closer you get To the who, what, where, when, how Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Guess what I heard Guess what I heard Hey guys, this is Know What I Heard. I'm Jamie, and this is part two of the vaccines episode. So you're most likely listening to this because you listened to part one and were like, oh, what next? But if you're like, what? Go back and listen to part one. Things will make a little bit more sense. But anyway, the conversation continues with the two moms about vaccines. So here we go. Do you think that there's a relationship between vaccination and disease rates, like increases in autism, allergies, autoimmune disorders, etc.? Yes, not just yes, but an emphatic yes. Uh, Not because the evidence is there in the research, not just because, but because I learned a lot by listening to people and parents whose children experienced vaccine injury. I learned a lot just being in mom groups, not even in the context of vaccination, right? So this phenomenon of like the mom group on Facebook, right? And there's a lot we could say about it, but it does provide a lot of community and it does provide a safe place for moms to talk about a lot of the difficult parts of being a mom and a lot of the difficult parts of caring for children. So I just started to see like the rates at which kiddos were... (laughs) suffering with speech delays or food allergies is a big one. You know, juvenile diabetes, which was something that I didn't really know much about. I I didn't understand. Diabetes was connected to immune dysfunction. I understand that now. But yeah, allergies, eczema, huge one. You know, every other mom was talking about eczema. Allergies, asthma. These are all things that are rooted in immune dysfunction. And these are things that we see in astronomical rates in children today. So it's just kind of this notion of like, if vaccination and the way that we implement it with this aggressive schedule, with these ingredients that we know are harmful, are we trading short-term infections for long-term chronic illnesses? And then let's take it a step further. You know, you said autism, so I'm going to say it. That's a huge area of contention and disagreement. And I would say a concerted, intentional, organized push of information to dispel that fear. But the reality is, is that autism, particularly regressive autism, how that would be described in the literature is when a child is developing, you know, what they would say on track, meeting their milestones, you know, going to their pediatrician, and then they have a round of shots and something changes in their development. Something blunts with their ability to connect, to communicate, to move, to speak. Again, these are all neurological. Autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder. And If you're in the camp where you acknowledge the fact that there are neurotoxins in vaccines and that the immune gut brain axis can be disrupted or injured by these injections in those early developing years, 
I think it's really hard to say that there's not a connection there. I definitely think there is a connection there. I think that vaccines are causing neurological injury and assault to children at alarming rates. I just don't think that the conversation is couched that way. And as a matter of fact, I think there's a lot of effort put behind the push to dispel that as not being true. But when you look at the evidence, it's kind of hard to deny it because vaccination is dysregulating our immune system, which is dysregulating our brain, which is dysregulating our gut, which is dysregulating our ability to function, maybe is not the primary or sole reason that someone maybe develops a chronic illness, but it certainly can add to it. Your genetics can write the code, but an outside trigger or toxin can put something into motion. And I believe that's exactly what vaccination does for susceptible people and certainly is the platform from which chronic health issues can perpetuate. In the arena of mommyhood, a lot of these things, eczema is one of them, gastrointestinal issues, food allergies, you know, it's just the, the narrative is that these things are common. These things are normal. Ear infections is a big one. Um, you know, kids get ear infections. Everybody knows that. You know, when I started seeing data that was laying down some evidence that vaccination is, can be connected to not just ear infections, but all inflammation, all dysregulation in the body, it just, it kind of gave me this perspective that a lot of the chronic things that kiddos face or deal with that were kind of told are normal parts of childhood could certainly be induced by and aggravated by how we administer vaccines to children. And to adults. I think the same thing with adults. I think with children, it's just more sensitive because they're at a younger developmental age and they're more, uh, their systems are more vulnerable. But that certainly can happen with adults too. And you never know what kind of toxin or trigger is going to negatively impact your health. And this is not information that is even really controversial anymore outside of the context of vaccines. We go to the store and we want to buy our aluminum free deodorant. Okay, cool. So at some point we realized that maybe it wasn't a good idea to slather aluminum on your skin, but like, are we going to go over here and deal with the fact that we're injecting it into babies? Because I think we kind of have to, right? Like, is it safe or is it not? Do we want to eliminate it from our daily routines to improve our health? And if so, maybe we should not inject it. That might be the most damaging way for it to assault our bodies. So these are just the conclusions that I've come to. I know there's a lot of people out there that would disagree with me, but I think there's a lot of evidence um, that correlates and at least says, hey, we need more research here. Chronic illness, autoimmune diseases, another phenomenon that is extremely, extremely just climbing at exponential rates for adults and children alike. At what point is it reasonable to say, hey, maybe constant overstimulation of the immune system when it's not prepared or ready to deal with what we're giving it, is leading to these autoimmune issues and other immune dysfunctions. But I definitely think there's a relationship there. And I think parts of exploring that relationship are purposely not being looked at to the detriment of all of us. So the relationship between vaccines versus um, like increased allergies or, um, you know, getting something um, where you then register on the autism spectrum. The reason why we have so many children who are allergic to eggs and peanuts, I'll tell you. 
getting ready to have a baby, I wanted to be as prepared as possible, right? So I want to read up about vaccines. I want to read up about allergies. I want to read up about all this like kind of random stuff. So I'm all prepared, right? So I remember reading this thing on allergies and it said, you do not give your children before the age of three anything having to do with peanuts, peanuts, peanut butter, any kind of nuts. Why? Because um, they don't want that to trigger an allergy response because I don't know. That was just the new thing that that they wanted to wait until the child was over the age of three to have peanuts or any kind of nut thing. I, I did not understand this, um, though I do understand how your body works and you and I may have different allergies and you may eat a peanut and your body thinks that it needs you know, that it's foreign and needs to be attacked and then you have your allergic reaction. But the reality is, is that also when you have a body, a child growing, they develop all their own immunities on their own, right? Because remember, we're, uh, we're fighting all the germs every day and they're developing all this stuff. And actually by withholding the peanuts and the nuts and the peanut butter, unless of course you have someone in your family who is severely allergic to peanuts, you have some sort of family genetic history, then that's take this off the table. Okay. This is just for like random, normal people who do not have food allergies normally in their family. And then now all of a sudden they've got kids with peanut butter allergies or egg allergies or whatever. Well, eggs is another one. They say, wait until the child is you know over the age of two or whatever to have that as well. Well, guess what? When you take those proteins and stuff that's in food that some kids have allergic reactions to, a lot of the times it's because they've never seen that before. So they have a much more severe reaction to the food. So when we wait to give our children um, these certain kinds of food until they're older, our body, which has never come in contact with it on any level, it does has no, you know, you think of things like a virus load, you know, you get a little bit of something in your body. It's like, okay. And then you get a little bit more and, you know, you continue to build up this virus load with stuff like allergies where with food in particular, you have no opportunity for your body to build up any kind of knowledge of the, the stuff that you're about to put in it. So I remember reading this about food and waiting, wait till your children, and and it was a newer thing that they were trying to say, wait until you give your children all these, you know, foods until they get older. And well, I'm kind of a fly by the seat of my pants kind of gal. So I was just like, "Eh, eh, I'm going to try it anyway, because I mean... We had no, we had no allergies in my family. There's no allergy, food allergies at all. So, and it was fine. And then I started telling other people, I'm like, oh, well, I wouldn't wait. You know, I, the people that I know who waited, not all for sure, but I do know people who waited and then their kids, the very first time they were given peanut butter had a terrible reaction. Um, so of course, in my mind, that's kind of the connection that I make. I think that there is a very high level of people who try to protect their children so much that I think it kind of does the opposite in a way. But I do understand, of course, you want to protect your children, right? So you don't want to put things in their body that might cause them distress or pain or, you know, whatever. But I think that, you know, I have a friend who got, whose daughter got the flu shot two years in a row and two years in a row, she had a mild hive reaction. And they were able to figure out that she was allergic to eggs. She's never had eggs. 
before. She never chose to, to try them. She never chose to, you know, whatever. So it was just something she had never had. Now she gets the flu vaccine and she's having a reaction to the flu vaccine because she's actually allergic to eggs. So, you know, I think that that's, you know, is that because she never really had eggs before? Is this, you know, who knows? Who knows? But the reality is in my world, I think that one, we've proven, first of all, I think it was thermosol or I might not be pronouncing that right. Um, that people were concerned that caused autism in children. That's been disproven. The guy who came out with that theory, it long has been disregarded. And um, I think um, his license was revoked and all kinds of things because he literally was like making up this stuff. I um, mean, unfortunately, people believe all the hype and jump right onto that and then perpetuates the idea and the fear. And now I don't want to get um, vaccinated. And now look, you didn't get vaccinated or you did get vaccinated and now you're allergic to eggs. You know, that kind of thing. I just don't think there's that correlation. You know, I think that the correlation between food allergies and the increase in food allergies is because people are being very cautious about when they introduce certain foods. Absolutely, you should. I'm not disregarding that in any way. Um, it, as a baby in childhood, you should introduce foods in a certain way. However, I, I don't think if you have any food allergies in your family that you should restrict food because then I think you do get those allergies. And I, I have a hard time thinking that the vaccines are causing children to have reactions where then all of a sudden they're just allergic to different things or that all of a sudden they have autism. Um, it's just not, I think that those two things are just not connected. I think that there are different pathways that you could find to the reasons why um, there is an increase in autism or why there's an increase in food allergies. One in particular, well, autism, it wasn't diagnosed for a very, very long time with lots of people. And forget it, if you had Asperger's or something like that, you were just weird, right? And half the time, if you had autism, you were just weird. So it's not that those um, numbers are so astronomically been increased and you and people try to follow that train back to vaccines. That's not it, right? In my opinion, it just doesn't work like that. I think that it's just, I, I think it's the schedule and the protection that people are trying to put on their children that actually is backfiring a little bit. If that makes sense. I'll tell you, um, my son is 10 years old and he just in December got diagnosed with autism. However, and one, I don't believe for one minute that I failed my child because I vaccinated him. And now maybe this is what's caused this. I've done my research and I know that his brain just works differently. That's what autism is, right? It's just your brain has a processing disorder. When I look back on things with my son, there's nothing I could have done differently with him. You know, he is, this is just the way his brain processes things. And I don't think a vaccine changed that, right? I think that what 
created that was in the womb first. Second of all, all the um, connections that happened when he was a baby, um, all the neurotransmitters and, you know, all the branches that are all being created when you're a baby and his just connected differently. I don't think that formaldehyde or thermocell or whatever made the brain pathway to be like, oh, nope, I think I'm going over this way. Sorry. Right? Like that's not happening. That's that's not what happened. Your experiences and the way you're you're born and the and the the neurotransmitters and all those connections that you make are the way your brain works. And so his just works a little bit differently with a pro, you know, processing information and you're not going to change my mind in um not you, someone's not going to change their my mind and say but but what if when he was two, he got that, you know, vaccine and it did? No, no. Because let me tell you, it doesn't. It doesn't just go in there and change the pathways um, with a shot. What changes pathways are repeated um, behavior. That's what creates pathways in your brain, right? So autism is created by the pathways in your brain and a shot can't do that. Okay. Now I'm getting a little sarcastic and sassy, so I'm going to stop. (laughs) Do parents have the right to refuse vaccinations for their children? And are there any exceptions? Um, Of course, is my knee-jerk reaction to that. I think I've made the point that there's a lot of conflicting data and science behind vaccination. I think there's a certain set of data and science that gets the spotlight for sure. But the other science and the other data that kind of reveals a much higher risk and even sometimes a lower efficacy and questions necessity altogether, that data is out there too. So again, in any other context, in any other medical situation, when there's conflicting data, it would be reasonable for us to say, you know, educate yourself and make your choice. But, you know, talk about parents who have have seen their children injured by vaccines, shouldn't that family be given the opportunity to then forego something that they know injured their child? You know, and it kind of sets up this whole pro-vax, (sighs) anti-vax, these two juxtaposed positions, like you're either for vaccines or you're not. Well, okay, there's a large portion of parents who are working with their health professionals and do a delayed schedule or skip some vaccines and do others, or, you know, some of us that forego vaccines altogether. So it's interesting to me that that has like now become this notion that these people are like anti-science or anti-public health. And it's like, okay, so one of the things I learned on my health journey is that Sometimes it's appropriate to treat an infection with antibiotics, but there are also other ways to support your body through an infection. There are certainly times when an antibiotic is warranted, but there are certainly times when you can access other means, whether that's, you know, high dosing vitamin C or all of the other vitamins that we're deficient in, vitamin A, vitamin D. There are ways to treat ear infections for kids if you want to forego antibiotics. Why do people want to forego antibiotics? Well, okay, not everybody wants to take an antibiotic. First of all, there's a lot of research out there that it wipes out your gut flora, your gut microbiome to take an antibiotic. And again, dysregulate the gut, you're going to dysregulate the brain and the immune system. You know, some people want to forego that. Some people would like to find another way to try to treat it so they don't have to deal with that aspect of it. But we don't call those people anti-antibiotics. 
that would be silly, you know? So it's like this stark two lanes has been set up that I think has really threatened parents in a way where it doesn't feel like you can refuse either some or all vaccines for your children. Um, Because then you get put in this camp that is very disparaged and even ridiculed and even discriminated against. There are certainly ethical concerns that there there's a good portion of people who don't want to inject tissue from other humans. There are vaccines that use aborted fetal tissue in the development. And some of that tissue, it's been shown in diagnostics and other labs that some of that tissue gets into the vaccine. So there are parents that have huge ethical concerns with that. You know, so I think that's why we have and should have access to exemptions because not everybody is going to come to that with the same Venn diagram. Parents who have seen their children be injured by vaccines or who have been injured themselves by vaccines and know that their child could be genetically susceptible or parents who just have a philosophical, you know, just as simple as I said, well, aluminum is a neurotoxin, so I'm not going to inject it into my child. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, so yes, for all of those reasons and a million others that I didn't list, but mostly informed consent, yes, parents have the right to refuse vaccines for their children and should. And I don't see any exceptions to that, me personally. I think that there are absolutely exceptions, and those exceptions come in the way of medical necessity. And But then what is also on the other side of that, a no-brainer is if I can't get my kid vaccinated, could you fucking do your job as a parent and get your kid vaccinated so we can help protect my kid? Like, that's just so simple to me, right? Like, so... Does a parent have that right? Well, if it's necessary in that kind of, I think that that right is not even a right. I think that's an unfortunate circumstance. Now, take the opposite side of that and say, well, no, because I just don't want to get my kid vaccinated because I'm scared they're going to become autistic. One, they have to do the research. And it's infuriating to me that the research that people who choose to not vaccinate are doing is not, in my opinion, concrete evidence. And I'll tell you that a lot of people I think who are anti-vaxxers use all this information that if I wrote a paper and turned it into my daughter's high school English teacher, it would get thrown out because the information is not coming from reliable sources. But parents have the right to refuse. I mean, I guess this is where we got to go down that line. I don't know. Do they? Do I have the right to leave my six-year-old while I go out drinking? Um, at the bar? Uh, Well, in my mind, I might. I don't. Just, (laughs) But in my mind, I might be like, yeah, sure, he's cool, and go to the bar. But guess what? No, the government says you can't do that. That's child neglect. We don't treat our children like that. Right. So can I, okay, fine. Can I leave my um, three-year-old with my six-year-old and my eight-year-old for 24 hours? Because that's probably cool. No, again, we're going to have to take your children away. So sorry for their bad luck. However, where is that fine line now when we talk about vaccines? Well, how can you say you can't, you know, we need to protect our children and we need to protect our society and we need to protect our community and, and especially, you know, people who are more at risk for getting illnesses um, that could be taken care of by vaccines. So do you get the right to say, my kid's not going to get vaccinated. The government does give you that option. 
that is very nice of our country to do that. However, it is not, in my opinion, for the best um, health situation in this country or even, even in the world. I think that obviously people would be all up in arms about, you know, you can't require me to make my kid get a shot, you know, whatever. But again, let's go back to the seatbelt thing, right? Like, back in the seventies, nobody wore seatbelts. And then everybody was up in arms when they were trying to tell us we had to wear seatbelts. It was a huge thing. If you look it up, they talk about all the people who are so pissed off and people wouldn't wear seatbelts. People still don't wear seatbelts to this day. And you know what? Everybody else around those people are like, you're a fucking idiot that you don't wear a seatbelt because it's stupid and it's easy and it'll save your life. It's the same thing. You don't wear your seatbelt every time you go get in the car because you think you're going to get into an accident. You do it to make sure that if you do get into an accident, you are as protected as you can be. What is the difference between doing that and a vaccine? To me, it's the same thing. I hope I'm never in a position where I have to get some horrible disease because I don't have a vaccine for it or I chose not to get it. Like I don't I don't understand the connection in people's brain that says, well the government's just trying to tell me what to do with my body. We're not talking about abortion here. That's something the government talks about doing with your physical body. We're talking about the health and safety of our country, of our community, of of your friends, of your immunocompromised people in your neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so obvious to me. So I don't know how it would work, but if we could mandate vaccines for all of our children, I think that health-wise, we would be in a completely different realm for our country. I mean, you know, the hardest hit places in our country, health-wise, are um, you know lower-income places and those people who don't have access to healthcare or vaccines, and then they get the, the you know the most ill, and then are you know we're paying tax money for hospital bills that people don't have healthcare for, or you know whatever the case may be. So if we mandate uh, vaccines for everyone and we provide that for everyone, doesn't that mean that the state of our country is better off health-wise, monetarily, community-wise? I mean, just the benefits seem to be so obvious to me, as opposed to saying, you guys get to choose what you want to do. Okay? Good luck. Good luck. Look at our lower income cities. Good luck ain't working, folks. Right? So we have to do something as a society. And maybe that something is saying, okay, guys, remember when we say we are all going to wear seatbelts because it's positive and y'all didn't like it, but then it saved Uncle Jimmy in that terrible car accident? Hey, let's do that with vaccines. And guess what? Maybe little Jimmy's kid now, Sam, gets to live because he got his vaccines. How would you describe herd immunity? I mean, I think it's funny is herd immunity to me, I always think of, I always think of dogs because dogs, actually, I just read recently that rabies is pretty much eliminated and eradicated from the canine immunity. That's fascinating to me. Well, you know, there's wild animals. I get that. Okay. Anyway, back on track. Um, 
the herd immunity, if we, I mean, I think it's a great in theory and I do believe in herd immunity. However, the reality is, is that I still got to get my dog that damn rabies shot, right? Because the fox down the street got all fucked up and got rabies with the raccoon, whatever. It's the same thing with people, right? Like herd immunity is going to work for so much. And first of all, I don't even know when you are able to really get herd immunity. Uh, Well, here's the thing. Okay, forget it. Let's say we have herd immunity. The reality is, is that it doesn't matter. Because if you do not participate in the vaccines, the herd immunity will just go away. We saw that in the measles. I mean, yes, we still have herd immunity in a sense that like the majority of people in our country, in the world, are immune to this, you know, disease or illness or whatever. But the fact of the matter is it's not completely eradicated. It's not, or we wouldn't have it. And the reason why we have it are because people are choosing to de- to rely on herd immunity. It's kind of like the pullout method. Um, I may have just taken a really random turn, but it's like you can rely on your birth control, right, as whatever. But if your pullout method is your reliance on your birth control, I mean, it's hair miss. You know what I mean? I feel like that's how herd immunity works. <laughs> Choose to do whatever you want with that information. I'm just saying. Um, so herd immunity is a theory, an epidemiological theory, about how natural infection spreads through communities and then um, can sometimes protect uh, pockets of communities when a portion of people have experienced the infection. So this was something that was studied in like the early 20th century. Like the guy's name was Hedrick or Hedrich, not even sure how to pronounce it. But he, so over like 25, 30 years, he studied from an epidemiological standpoint, he studied wild measles, right? And he watched it move through communities. And he realized this phenomenon that when a certain percentage of the community had experienced the virus, that there was kind of a herd-like protection. So it's important to note that herd immunity is a theory that was developed on the notion of natural infection and natural immunity. Vaccine-induced herd immunity is not supported by the evidence. It's so wild to me that we talk like it is, but I think we all are aware, you know, of somebody who was maybe fully, quote-unquote, fully vaccinated and maybe um, contracted an infection or an illness. Anyway, one thing that comes to mind is sometime in the past couple years, I remember that. I remember that news article about the Navy ship where, like, the entire ship caught mumps. And it was, you know, one of those head scratchers because it's like, well, they all had to have an MMR, which is measles, mumps, rubella, to get on that ship. Or like, you know, a pertussis outbreak in a fully vaccinated, you know, like little pocket of people who have all had all their DTAP boosters, but yet somebody still gets pertussis. So vaccine-induced immunity, herd immunity, is not an accurate representation of that theory, the way that I understand it. And I think it's very misplaced. Some people have poor immune responses to vaccination. Again, like I said in the beginning, natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity are not the same thing. This is a super complex topic. I'm not an immunologist. Our immune systems are really complex and really fascinating. But the same thing that happens with natural immunity does not happen with vaccine-induced immunity. You know, natural immunity usually for things like chickenpox and measles used to be like you got it and like you were good. 
you are good for a lifetime. Well, that's not the case with vaccines as, as evidenced by the schedule, right? We have to keep taking boosters all the time to kind of up our antibodies or whatever. So I think this notion that there's vaccine-induced herd immunity is, number one, not supported by the evidence, but also really, really, really damaging to individual medical freedom and to parental rights. Because it's this notion that unvaccinated or partially vaccinated or, or somebody who's not following the schedule is not safe and that they're going to affect the herd, you know, by them not getting their vaccines, they're threatening herd immunity. But that's simply not supported by the evidence as it stood when it was created. Now, you can go on the CDC website, I'm sure, and review their research that's highlighted. And they're, they're going to tell you that vaccine-induced herd immunity is possible. The scientific integrity of those studies, I think, needs to be looked at with a close eye. You know, a lot of them are epidemiological studies, but a lot of them are studies when it comes to safety and efficacy, where they're comparing large groups of vaccinated individuals to other large groups of vaccinated individuals or children, or, you know, there there's no placebo testing. If we're talking about safety, there's no placebo testing, but it's like this group got this adjuvant and this got this adjuvant. And look, there was no safety difference, but, but, but where's our placebo? So, I understand that the narrative is that that vaccines can produce herd immunity and that everybody should be mindful of that and approach their public health decisions with that truth in mind. But I unfortunately don't think that that's true. I think that's a misrepresentation of of the theory of herd immunity as it stands and as it was investigated by Hedrick and kind of documented by Hedrick. And so I think that we all kind of have a misunderstanding about what true herd immunity is. And I personally believe that herd immunity is something that is most effectively achieved and safely achieved through natural infections moving through communities. Are there any diseases that you think don't need to be vaccinated for due to being very minor or very treatable, like chickenpox? Oh, my God. Absolutely. Absolutely. We should get treated. I don't know if that absolutely sounded like I was saying the opposite, but no, absolutely. We should get vaccinated for it. Are you kidding me? Do you know how happy I am that I do not have to deal with my children having chicken pox? Oh, dear God. No, please vaccinate them. I remember being mildly miserable during chicken pox. I was so young. I do also remember very vividly all the parents being like, well, let's have a play date because so-and-so has got chicken pox and nobody else has had it yet or whatever the case is. Those 70s and 80s early parents were just so, you know, lie by the seat of their pants kind of people. They were feeding us peanuts when we were one. That's why we're not allergic. Anyway, side note. Um, so do I think that any diseases need not to be? No, that's silly because, um, if I have the opportunity for my body to fight off a little bit of the disease or a little bit of the virus, whatever, and get the antibodies for it, I'm checking that box. I'm not checking the one where I'm like, I'll just risk it and, you know, fight off my thousands of germs every day. And, oh, now I've got chicken pox because I never had it and I'm miserable and I'm gonna have to get really, really sick to get the antibodies. Oh, sign me up for the antibodies. That's where I'm at. Team antibodies. Here's my question. So you'd prefer not to have your child vaccinated because you really want them to just deal with the like life's life's kind of shitty sometimes. So here have a chicken box virus to just, you know, get a little tough. Like, that's just dumb, right? Like, if I would have given anything if we could have had those vaccines. And I remember when they had the vaccine, they came out with the vaccines. I was taking my kids and they were like, oh, they're going to get their chicken pox vaccine. And I was like, what? Oh, my God, that's amazing. 
Hell yeah. Do them all. What's the end game, mom? Like, you just want to yell at me because I'm scratching? That's why you didn't give me the vaccine? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't get it. Of course. I mean, at this point, I think I've kind of revealed that I don't believe that any vaccines are necessary. I understand that to some people, that's like a gas worthy, really extreme position. But no, I don't think that vaccines are necessary for minor diseases like chicken pox or even measles. You know, I understand the narrative of measles right now is a different one than it was 50 years ago, to be sure. But I found, you know, not just one study, but several studies that indicated, you know, that like acquiring these childhood illnesses that at one point in time were, you know, almost rites of passage. Like have your kids had chicken pox yet? Did your kids get measles? I mean, I think it's worth remembering the episode of the Brady Bunch where I think it was Jan got the measles and, and it wasn't a big deal and they helped her through it and nobody was freaking out. It's certainly a different tone today, but there's a lot of research that shows that when we experience these childhood illnesses naturally, it actually reduces our health issues later in life. It reduces our incident of chronic illness. It reduces incident of even cancer. Cancer is a big one and we haven't really talked much about that at all. Um, so not only do I think they're not necessary, I think there's a lot of evidence to show that experiencing these infections naturally build our immune system up in ways that we need it to be built up so that it is more equipped and better functioning as we move through life. It's like we're trading short-term infections, which I just want to take a second and acknowledge that like, I understand that there are people and kiddos who are immune compromised who, you know, chicken pox could, would be deadly for them or measles could be deadly for them. I certainly recognize that. I'm not trying to be dismissive of that at all. But what I'm saying is when there are people who are not suffering from those deficits, which the number of people who don't have some sort of immune dysfunction is dwindling. My point is most people can, with the right support and the right treatment, can make it through these illnesses and come out on the other side with a better functioning, more well-equipped immune system. And I think there's a lot of evidence in the literature for that. So again, for me, that was that was really important. And that was research that I had never um, been told about by anyone or even understood that that was you know, something that had been studied and that those were the results or those were the findings of those studies. So I don't think vaccines are necessary, but I certainly think in this context, it's worth mentioning that not only are they not necessary, but letting yourself experience them naturally can actually be beneficial to your body later in life. Have you vaccinated your children? Yeah, I did. I gave them um, some Tylenol before the doctor's appointments. That's what we do. Um, and then when they get home, I can give them some Motrin, you know, if if I'm like worried about it. And guess what? They're totally fine. They're totally fine. So yeah, vaccinate them all. As a matter of fact, I will say this. My daughter got the HPV vaccine when she was 11 or 12. And that's a two-part shot. The Gardasil. So I will say, kind of off on a tangent, I even did that. And I'll have my boys get it too. And the reason why is because those commercials where you're like, 
you know, get this. It's so obvious. And you get, you know, you see the commercials and they sell you on it because that's their goal. And it worked. It sold me on it. But I wasn't like super active to go make sure that she got that particular vaccine just because I didn't know very much about it. Um, and she was still, you know, in that time frame where she was just starting to be old enough to get it because you have to get it within a certain window. And it is it's two shots. And we went to the doctors when she was like 11 and her doctor says she has not gotten the Articel shot. And I said, no. And he said, I'm telling you that if I can tell you to get the one vaccine for a teenager, you know, like that will affect them, protect them in a way that we can't protect our children. This is the way to do it. And as, you know, an adult, I know lots of people who, you know, did not have the benefit of that um, vaccine and will live with those consequences, including cancer. Um, I have, you know, friends that have gotten cancer from HPV and again, kind of putting a little bit of a blind faith in my community doctors and medical, you know, people. But I, I was like, yeah, sign her up, go ahead, get the, get the vaccine. Because again, in protecting my child, I think that I have to think about not just this moment initially right here, right now, I got to think about what she's doing, uh, you know, as she gets older and the positions that she's going to be in and how can I help her and I can get her this shot and, and it can help. And I'm being told by the medical people, the professionals, the ones that, you know, have the research and the scientific background for all of this information that it's in her best interest to do it. Guess what? She got it done. I have vaccinated my oldest child. I've kind of talked a little bit about my journey and how this researching vaccines for myself didn't really happen for me until my oldest child was school-aged. And so I was pregnant with my second child when somebody that I trusted a lot handed me a book and said, hey, you might want to read this. Um, it was a book called Vaccination is Not Immunization. I'd never heard of it before. And a lot of different, really, really profound circumstances kind of intersected for my family at that time. But what happened when I was pregnant with my second child was not only was information about vaccines coming into my awareness that was new information for me, and not only was I just having a very strong mother's intuition that was growing about this concern for vaccine safety. But, you know, when I was 35 weeks pregnant, my husband was diagnosed with cancer. So that was a huge curveball <laughs> for my family. And then the next week I went to my OB checkup um, and he regrettably told me that he was having some professional shifts and would not be able to assist me um, in my labor and delivery. So it was like two huge changes happened at the end of my pregnancy that kind of sent us into this whirlwind. And the reason I think it's important to mention that there is because in all of those turns of events, I was fortunate and blessed enough. There was a lot of divinity and there was a lot of things coinciding and happening at once for this to even come out this way. But I ended up giving birth to my second child in my home. That was something that had always been a desire of my heart. 
art, but not something that I thought I was actually going to get to experience. But because of all of these really intense circumstances, um, my husband having a huge surgery, you know, when I was 38 weeks pregnant and just so much happened. But the when the dust settled, it gave us this amazing opportunity to step out of the way we had always thought about childbirth. And that is so connected to these bigger understandings of holistic health and wellness. Now, just because this was right for me doesn't mean it's right for everybody. Everybody's different. But for me, this was the good fit for me. This was the good fit for my family. And it allowed me to experience labor and delivery and postpartum in a way that was more biologically peaceful and sound than what I had experienced with my first child. Now, I didn't, I wouldn't say I had a traumatic birth experience. I know that a lot of women did. It was largely unremarkable. But looking back, you know, with my second child, just having just this completely other experience and being outside of that medical model that says you have to do X, Y, and Z, being outside of that environment that as soon as your child's born, they whisk them away and give them a hepatitis B vaccine injection and give them a synthetic vitamin K injection. You know, those were things that with my first kid, I didn't even know those things were happening. I didn't have time to question them. I didn't even, I wasn't even, I didn't even know about them. So with my second kiddo, I just, I was coming in from such a different perspective from the things I had studied while I was pregnant. And then being able to experience like a biologically informed, peaceful, gentle, focus on attachment type of birth experience, which is super huge for me. It really shifted my thinking. And so I will say that now that my position on vaccines has changed, I, I made, we made some different decisions, our second child, and then we went on to have a third child. And those two children are not vaccinated. Uh, they haven't had any injections. And we won't be doing any more injections for our oldest child. So, so just as a family, we've grown and, and changed our position on that. For me, a lot of the things that I saw in the research, a lot of the, a lot of the things that I, that I was like, huh, you know, I wonder, I wonder if chronic ear infections in babies can be related to this constant immune stimulation, just these different things. So, so for me, not only, you know, did that research impact me, but I have had my own personal experience with seeing those differences. You know, my first child largely did not have any major or chronic health issues, but he did have some issues. You know, he did have, I think, looking back, maybe three or four ear infections in that first year. He did have times when, you know, his digestive system or his gut, you know, a lot of babies have a lot of problems with whether it's breast milk or formula, just, you know, you hear about colicky babies, you hear about babies who have sensitivities. He had some of that, you know, he had some skin rashes, all stuff that at the time I was told was very normal. But for me personally, that has not been my experience with my children that have not received vaccines. My two children who who haven't received vaccines have really, really never been ill. Of course, you know, that that's not to say that they haven't suffered with their own, you know, just developmental, I don't even want to say difficult Every baby's different. Every baby develops differently. So I I never want to like compare too much, but I will tell you, like we have seen completely different health outcomes um, with regards to like mild and moderate issues with babies and toddlers in our vaccinated child versus our unvaccinated children. So that to me just strengthens my position. It strengthens that I, I feel confident that this is the right choice for our family. I feel confident that this choice has to be left open for families. Where there is risk, there must be choice. This is not a controversial idea or a notion until we start talking about vaccines. 
And, you know, it's one of those things, if, if I knew then what I know now, yes, I would have certainly made different choices, hands down. I have to make peace with that. Thankfully, my child did not suffer a severe adverse reaction, a severe injury, or something worse. Uh, so I'm very thankful for that. But I can definitely look back and see him having a difficult time developmentally, neurologically, gastrointestinally. My oldest child got his last round of shots in July of 2016. But I just had a really sick feeling in my stomach that day. I didn't, I didn't want to do it. And it wasn't because I had educated myself on it and felt firm that I knew that what the risks were and that we weren't willing to take them. I, it was just pure mother's intuition. And I was looking back at photos of him, you know, because that was his round of shots before kindergarten. And uh, looking back at all of his first day of kindergarten photos with his little crooked smile. And I just, I just felt so sick about it. Um, and when I say crooked smile, neurological injury and inflammation can and does happen as a result of vaccines. And sometimes evidence of that is visually evident. That can be facial paralysis, facial palsies, and different kind of issues with facial muscles. You know, it's just one of those mom things. I look at those first day kindergarten pictures and one of the sides of his mouth is drooping down a little bit. And I just think, oh my goodness, you know, um, what was happening inside of his body? So um, there have been several moments I don't want to get emotional. Um, there have been several moments for me on this journey of learning and relearning that uh, hit me right in the gut or sent chills down my spine, you know. And one of those was, I, I remember reading a published study in a journal, I think it was from 2017 or 2018. And the title of it was Delayed Hippocampal Inflammation as a Result of Hepatitis B Vaccination. And the research basically outlined that the aluminum adjuvants in a hepatitis B vaccine can and do cause neurological injury. Sometimes that neurological injury looks like inflammation on the brain. Sometimes that inflammation is delayed. So that's what the science says. But I had to sit there for a second and say to myself, if we're doing this to babies on the first day of life, how do we know if we're injuring them? How do we know what their baseline is neurologically, neurodevelopmentally? We don't. There have just been moments of realization for me that make my heart ache, and I do have regrets. I would do things differently, but I'm thankful to be where I am now and to know what I know now so that I can make an informed decision that fits my values and that fits my family's needs, and, and then to just have the things that I'm reading in the literature be reinforced in my own family unit. Yes, it's anecdotal evidence. Take it for what you will. My experience is not more important or more valid than anyone else's. But I see with my own two eyes, two children whose immune systems have never been assaulted, and they're better for it. And so it just further solidifies my confidence in my decision. I feel informed. I feel confident. You know, nobody wakes up and says, hey, <laughs> it might be really fun to just take a huge leap outside of societal norms. You know, it might be really fun to make a different decision than everybody else makes for their kids. You know, nobody says that. It's not fun. It's angsty. And it can be difficult and it can be, it can take a lot of courage to follow your intuition and to trust your own knowledge and perceptions and to take that step and say, say, this is what's right for us. Vaccines are not the only way to stay healthy. And there are better ways that carry far less risk that are worth exploring. Are there any exceptions to vaccines you would consider giving or not giving your child or yourself? Um, at this point, no. Um, 
you know, I've thought a lot about the COVID vaccine and, um, and here's the thing. I'm kind of just not well, one. I've watched people get it. My, my husband got it. He's completely fine. I know lots of people who have gotten it and they're completely fine. And, you know, you also have the background. It's like that background music where you have people like, oh, it might make them sterile or, you know, you don't know, it might give them Bell's palsy and it never goes away or, you know, whatever. Like, I feel like that's just kind of like background noise. The children and I are not eligible to get vaccines right now for COVID. So it's kind of one of those things that I'm like, just kind of waiting out a little bit. Um, and when it's our turn to go, to be honest, I'm probably still not going to think about it. I'm probably just going to be like, okay, it's our turn. It, our time's up. Like, this is it. Because I think that even with COVID, like, do I risk Bell palsy or do I risk, um, you know, even being sterile? Of course, I don't want to make any of my children sterile, but I sure as hell would rather them be sterile and alive than on a vent and dead. So yeah, I'm, I, I think that I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, when we're eligible to get these vaccines and then I, you know, I'm, putting my kids in the car and we're going to get it because I would prefer them to be alive than um, dead. So I think I've made my point, <laughs> but I, I, I would like to say I would take that on a case by case basis. I mean, you never know what circumstances are going to come up. Obviously, let's just take a look back at the last year and everybody acknowledged to ourselves, like we don't know what's around the next corner, but this is where I come back to, you know, the fundamentals of what I believe about the immune system and what I believe supports and propels healthy functioning of the immune system and what I believe about the immune brain gut axis and what supports that, to me, vaccination is not that. So, you know, I don't know what circumstance is going to come up. I don't know if my family and I will ever have the opportunity to travel internationally. I don't know, you know, what type of outbreaks or pandemics are in the future. For me, for my family, you know, when I think of how to protect us and how to sustain us and how to increase our health and wellness and our ability to fight illnesses and disease, vaccination is not that for us. I guess I would say I'll take that on a case-by-case basis, but I'm kind of of the opinion that the risks of vaccines do not outweigh the benefits and the efficacy of vaccines is severely oversold to prop up a liability-free, multi-billion dollar industry and vaccines aren't necessary to maintain good health. So when I take all of that into account, it would have to be kind of a really unique situation for absent any other outside pressure. I mean, I think I would be remiss not to at least acknowledge there are a lot of conversations going on right now. A lot of large societal conversations about vaccination and about requirements of vaccination and about who should be allowed to do what in society based on vaccine status. So of course, I'm keeping a tight eye on that and on watching how all of that develops, but it's not going to change my position on vaccination and it's not going to change my confidence that my children and I don't need vaccines to stay healthy or to protect ourselves. So probably not, but you know, we'll see what's around the next corner in life because you never know. You can't inject health. I'm not trying to be quippy or funny, but like you can't. That's not how it works. So I just think that there are far better ways to explore that carry much less risk to your brain and your body and your quality of life. 
you know, and so that's where I focus my energy. That's where I focus my learning. That's where I focus my education is just learning those ways to support my family and, and take care of my family. Huge thank you to the moms who joined me on this episode. I really appreciate you being so open about your decisions. And thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you can please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you haven't already liked the Facebook page, please like us at Know What I Heard Podcast. Follow us on Instagram. And if you have any questions or show ideas or comments, please send an email to knowwhatiheard at gmail.com. And until next time, hey, know what I heard?